This is Backstory. I'm Brian Ballow. During the American Revolution, the average American drank a lot of booze, 10 times more than today. You'd think George Washington would have worried about rowdy troops, but no. Washington was incredibly concerned that soldiers were not getting enough to drink. We're revisiting some of our favorite and some of our most surprising stories. We'll hear about a 19th century mental illness, drapedomania, that confounded white Americans in the decades before the Civil War. It was an illness described and defined as one that causes enslaved persons to run away. We'll look back at Chicago in the 1960s in an effort to protest unfair housing policy there. We were able to get so many people inside the house that when the sheriff's guys came, uh, they couldn't get in to remove the furniture. Today, a look back at some of Backstory's greatest hits. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with Peter Onuf. Hey there, Brian. And Ed Ayers is with us. Hello, gentlemen. We're going to start off today with something you might have been doing a few weeks ago, counting down the minutes and seconds to midnight on New Year's Eve. Maybe you were in the living room, standing in front of a TV, watching that ball train. And while you were slowly ticking away the seconds, so were millions of other Americans. This whole idea of people who were nowhere near each other doing something at exactly the same time, that had to be invented. And it was invented in the 1860s. As they're beginning to finish the Transcontinental Railroad, they're imagining a way of celebrating it simultaneously, having everybody in the country in on it, a simultaneous experience. Since it unites the East and West, wouldn't it be great if everybody could know exactly when it's done? This is Mike O'Malley. He's an historian at George Mason University, and he says that in 1869, this idea of a national moment of simultaneity was totally new. The Union Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad were about to meet up at Promontory Summit. And the head honchos at the railroads decided to rig up this mechanism so that everyone could share in this moment. They actually have a, a hammer, which has got wires coming from it. On one end, the wires are connected to a telegraph, and then there's other wires on the spike. And the idea is when the metal hammer hits the spike, click, the whole country will hear the click that indicates the, the blow that drives the last spike. They're all there, you know, the trains are facing each other. They're all these railroad officials and uh, tired and exultant workers hanging in the distance. And Leland Stanford, one of the owners of the line coming from the Pacific to Utah, is granted the honor of driving the last spike, a spike made of 17 karat gold, mind you. So Stanford, who was, uh, you know, pretty much a grocer before he became a railroad baron, raises the hammer and swings and thunk, he hits a wooden tie. He misses the spike completely and the, the wire breaks and that's the end of that. <laughs> so a telegraph operator just presses a button. The signal shoots out across the lines, makes its way to the operators across the country and everybody shares in their first simultaneously experienced moment ever, or so they thought. If you look at all over the country when the golden spike was driven, Every city will tell you a different time, and different newspapers within a given city will tell you a different time. And this is where our story for today really begins. 
because in the 1860s, time was, well, sort of every man for himself. Every railroad, every newspaper, every church, every town figured out the time on their own. There was no central authority on time. So there's three different times reported in San Francisco as to when that spike was actually driven because there is no standard time for San Francisco. So there's no way of, to actually answer when the spike was driven. They have the idea of simultaneity, the intellectual idea, the capacity, but they don't have the technology. They don't have the means to make it happen. That story came from a show we did a while back on the history of time in America. Now, in the years since, we've heard from listeners who were generally surprised to hear there was such a thing, that there was an invention of a standard time, something Americans depend on just about every aspect of our lives, almost every second. Now, truthfully, we surprised our listeners a lot. That's our job here on Backstory. So today, we're going to be looking at the best of Backstory over the years. This is the first of two episodes revisiting some of our most memorable segments. We'll hear some interviews with history makers that help us make sense of 21st century America. And we'll dip into some staff favorites from past shows. We'll also air some gems from our very first pilot episode. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. But first, let's return to some of the more surprising historical nuggets we've dug up over the years. I have to say, these segments were hard to choose. We've surprised our listeners and ourselves with a range of odd topics, such as the popularity of mental asylums as tourist destinations in the 19th century. We also explored a respected pseudoscience called nasology, which claimed to explain a person's character by the shape of his or her nose. Then there was the interview I did in the episode about the history of alcohol. I talked to historian Sarah Ann Meacham about the prodigious amounts of liquor that American men and women drank in the early period. Generally speaking, people drank differently in the 18th century. They're drinking it throughout the day. So it's a little bit different, and they're Mm -hmm. very accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there really don't seem to have been concerns about drunkenness. It's true that they do describe people occasionally as drunk for court cases where somebody will be at court and the justices will throw someone out um, for being so drunk that he called the justices, you rotten, vile dogs. (laughs) Just telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) But they don't they don't do anything to them. They just say, go sober up and come back. Uh, Now, we period specialists tend to think that the American Revolution changes everything. It's a new world. It did change everything. Yeah. Would it be a new and more sober world or what changed in the Uh, world of alcohol? It's going to be a more sober world for some people. Uh Uh-huh. And a less sober world for others. Whoa. So part of what happens during the American Revolution is that in 1781, George Washington decided to change the daily rations. Um, Up until then, the Uh, Continental Army had gotten their supplies the same way that English armies traditionally had. They went from place to place, and the local housewives came out, they set up stalls, and they sold food and liquor to the army. Mm -hmm. But this creates all sorts of problems. People fall in love, people Mm. get active in other ways, and a lot of children were produced. Um, And so (laughs) what happens is that... George Washington gets, I think, understandably very frustrated where he has all of these sort of women trailing along with the men. He has all these children trailing along. They're eating food that could be for the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And Washington is trying to figure out ways to make a more professional army. But it's not the drunkenness of the soldiers so much as their sex lives that seems to be bothering That's true. Washington Washington is not particularly concerned about their drunkenness. And in fact, Washington was incredibly concerned 
that um, soldiers were not getting enough to drink. Mm. The uh, soldiers were supposed to get the equivalent of at least three shots of rum per day or a pint of cider per day. One pint of cider is just half of what a Chesapeake woman would have That's right. It's not nearly enough for a fighting man. And in fact, men fighting the American Revolution are supposed to get extra rations of alcohol if they actually fight that day, right before battle, so that they're really geared up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if it rains, they get double rations. Um, The problem is that Washington can't provide all this alcohol that on paper the men are supposed to get. Uh Um, And so he makes a switch in 1781. He says, from now on, we're going to have rum provided on year-long contracts. So instead of having all these women set up stalls and have the men go and get their own alcohol, we're going to have army-supplied rum to the fighting men. So this is a key moment in the the transition toward a more industrialized market-based It is, and I think it also helps teach American men, these new creatures, right, American men, that American men drink distilled liquor made by other American men. It really leads to the masculinization of alcohol. Well, forget that army saying, be all you can be. (laughs) Obviously, it should be, drink all you can drink. You know, that's one of the things we keep discovering over and over on the show is that the people of the past weren't prim and proper the way that Uh folklore (laughs) has them being. I mean, that's a whole lot more drinking than today, isn't it, guys? Well, they drank approximately 10 times as much as we do per wow. capita. And, and uh, there's a, a lot of reasons for this. Strange as it may sound, distributing alcohol was a kind of public health measure in the Army, partly because water supplies were so unreliable. Uh, and there's also the morale benefits of people who are going to go out and risk their lives. That's the uh, general's thinking. Before we take a short break, I just have to share one more segment from the Backstory Vault that I found truly surprising, in this case, quite disturbing. Like many topics Backstory has covered, it has to do with the evolution of views on race in America. In a show we did on the history of mental illness, we talked about a respected Louisiana doctor named Samuel Cartwright. Cartwright was influential in the medical community in the decades before the Civil War. Historian Catherine Bancoli Medina told me about one of his mental health theories called drapedomania. It was an illness described and defined as one that causes enslaved persons to run away from slavery or to have thoughts of escape from bondage. Okay, that was an illness. Yes, yes. He considered it an illness. Uh, He considered it a form of mental illness akin to madness. Wow. Uh, What was his treatment for this, I shudder to ask? (laughs) Indeed you should. He he had some interesting treatments with respect to drapedomania. One of those is the idea that if the slaveholder would keep the enslaved person in an infantile state or uh, in a submissive state that that kind of treatment would help to cure the person from uh, wanting to be free. And if that failed, then the slave owner or the overseer could resort to whipping as a prevention against running away. And it was recommended Mm. as a cure. 
Cartwright's theory didn't only apply to African Americans in bondage. He thought the same diagnosis could apply to free black people as well. Cartwright had particular condemnation for free blacks. He believed that uh, free blacks more often suffered from his uh, Negro slave disease than did um, the enslaved blacks. Because sure, well, they weren't being they weren't being <laughs> treated. They weren't being treated like children. Absolutely, absolutely. And Cartwright uh, specifically spelled out that uh, whenever you find free blacks um, in their own communities, in their own enclaves, actually behaving as if they were free, uh, they were the ones who were suffering the most. You know, Brian and Peter, listening to these stories, I'm reminded once again how strange the American past really was. You know, every week we explore some new facet of American history, and every week we're struck by how completely differently people thought in the past than they do today. And that's part of what makes this show so intriguing, I think, certainly for us. I hope so for our listeners. I think that's right, Ed, but I'd add that uh, there are things we do recognize uh, in the past and some that we wish we didn't recognize about ourselves in the past. And I think it's a very complicated thing. It is a foreign country, but we got a passport there. In fact, you could call it our citizenship. And I'll just say it's made me a lot less smug about just how smart we are today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because those people that you talked about, Ed, Peter talks about— a lot of them were really smart. Many of them were very sensitive. They cared deeply. And then they went and did all that odd stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And one has to wonder what kind of odd stuff we're doing right now that we're, yeah. we're simply not aware of. Well, how much time yeah, do you have, Brian? I've got quite a list for you. <laughs> you may not be smug, but you are odd. <laughs> I think you're pulling your punches a little bit, Brian, when you say odd, because I think you mean much more than that. And uh, we don't like to make moral judgments. It distorts our history, uh, but they're inescapable sometimes. And I think that's what we have to live with. And that's the tension that drives us forward. While assembling the show, we asked our staff about some of their favorite stories. Jamal Milner, our technical director and longest standing staff member, chimed in with his pick. My favorite segment uh, since I've been here has been this segment on a show about home ownership on redlining within uh, Chicago and some of the solutions that a great group of people found for these problems. And this particular piece has great emotion. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Also, in the end, the good guys win. So it's a piece that I always love to hear. And I'm just going to let Brian take it from here. In 1967, Jack McNamara was a Jesuit seminarian, and he came to Chicago on what we might today call a mission trip. The local pastor wanted a bunch of young guys like Jack to each take a city block and basically just talk to the people there, find out what their problems were. He called it Operation Saturation. Jack thought it was a summer gig. Uh, that summer project ended up to be about four and a half years. 
Jack was stationed in North Lawndale, a mostly African-American neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. Gray stone detached houses, each family sharing a wall with its neighbor. And the reason Jack spent so long there? It began with a conversation he had with a woman on his assigned block. Her name was Ozerea Arbertha. I was sitting in her living room one night. She was a widow with four kids. And uh, she was working at the post office making $5,000 a year. Her mother was living with her. Uh, She was making $4,000 a year scrubbing floors at a hospital at night. And uh, Mrs. Arbertha that night, uh, as we were sitting there, had a, with a tear coming down her face, said, I think I could make it if I didn't have this big mortgage payment. And I said, how much is your mortgage payment? And she said, $226 a month. That surprised Jack. Just a couple of years before, he had been living in Skokie, a white suburb with homes that were by all accounts nicer than Lawndale's. And Jack's mortgage payments, well, they were $108, less than half of what Mrs. Arbertha was paying. To understand why Mrs. Arbertha's payments were so high, you need to understand what Lawndale was like a decade earlier. Back then, Lawndale wasn't an all-black neighborhood. It was an all-white neighborhood. But near the end of the 1950s, real estate speculators played on the racial fears of white homeowners. They spread rumors that a wave of blacks was poised to move in, a situation that would drag down property values and ruin the neighborhood. It was a process known as blockbusting. James Allen McPherson described the speculators' tactics in a 1972 issue of The Atlantic. Some merely hired black women to walk their children through white neighborhoods or paid black men to drive noisy cars through an area a few times a day. Sometimes it was a telephone call for Johnny May. Another caller might simply say, they're coming. The whites sold many prices far below the appraised value of their homes. A speculator would come in and buy a place from an outgoing white family for $15,000, for example. And then two days later, they would turn around and sell it to a black family for $28,000. You know, that wasn't all of it because they were paying interest on an additional $13,000. So by the time they got through 20 years, they would have put in $25,000, $26,000 more. We refer to that total markup as a race tax. The obvious question is, why would anybody pay double market value for their home? Why not just go somewhere more affordable? The most fundamental reason was that blacks were not welcome in most white neighborhoods. In many instances, there were stipulations in the actual deeds that restricted owners from selling to non-whites. As for renting, well, a lot of these families had enough of that. I thought buying a house was a step up. This is Clyde Ross. Like many of the other new faces in Lawndale, he had grown up down south. He was a sharecropper in Mississippi. Uh, Regardless of what it was going to cost me, I was going to try to make it up beyond, you know, the plantation-style situation. In case you didn't catch that, he said he was trying to get beyond the plantation-style situation. So in 1961, he bought a home for $27,500, 
a home he later learned was worth only $15,000. But here's the kicker. Clyde applied for a mortgage to cover the inflated asking price. Despite having a job and being a first-time buyer, he was denied. And blame for that lies not with speculators, but with the U.S. government. In the 1930s, the government wanted to encourage homeownership, not just for the richest Americans, but for everyone. So the Federal Housing Administration, or the FHA, created a safety net for banks. They basically said, if you give mortgages to higher-risk, low-income borrowers, we'll guarantee those loans. And if those people default, it's the government's loss, not yours. The thing was, the FHA would only guarantee loans in certain neighborhoods. The line in the underwriting manuals was that the introduction of an incompatible element to a neighborhood uh, would deem that neighborhood to be too risky for a, a federally underwritten loan. This is Tom Segrew, an historian at the University of Pennsylvania. Incompatible elements meant uh, ethnic or racial minorities. Any neighborhood with more than a handful of African-Americans living in it was usually systematically excluded from those loan programs. In a process known as redlining, the government drew up detailed maps to make these distinctions clear. They also colored the maps of the neighborhoods that were green and blue were rated the highest, the neighborhoods that were yellow, kind of risky, the neighborhoods that were red uh, were deemed too risky for uh, federally underwritten loans. Um, And those neighborhoods were invariably neighborhoods with significant minority populations. With mortgages off the table for so many African Americans, they were left with only one option to finance a house. It was called a land contract. And these contracts essentially made homeownership very difficult to obtain. I mean, you miss one payment and the house would be repossessed and the speculator who bought it would put it on the market and sell it to somebody else. It was essentially a kind of a buying on installment plan. Under a contract, you got all the responsibilities of home ownership without actually owning any equity in the house. When you got a contract, you don't own the house. Again, Clyde Ross. You're just paying for it. And you were responsible for tax, insurance, upkeep, heat, lights, gas, and everything you were responsible for. Jack McNamara discovered that hundreds of families in Lawndale had purchased their homes under these contracts. More shocking still was that none of them realized their neighbors were in the same situation. Everyone thought they were the only ones. Most of them were embarrassed to have bought on contract. They would tell each other they had mortgages, but they didn't, you know, none of them did have mortgages. They would just. So they referred to it as a mortgage. Right. And uh, mostly because, you know, it was embarrassing to have to admit that they had this inferior form of homeownership. McNamara organized a meeting with about 10 families. That meeting turned into many meetings, and the 10 families turned into 500. The group gave themselves a name, the Contract Buyers League, or CBL. Their goal? To renegotiate the members' contracts, to lower the price of their homes, all 500 of them, to fair market value. Despite their numbers, there was an initial reluctance to act. A lot of these families had been paying their contracts for upwards of 10 years. That's a lot of money to lose if something goes wrong. Clyde Ross likened the situation to something he saw as a boy back in Mississippi. When I was at home, I used to graze the cow. We had one cow. And so we put a chin on her leg. 
and tarp, and we would put in places where she could see grass twice a day. So one time I come back to move in another place and the chain was off and the cow didn't even know it. The cow was still walking in the same area while she could eat. She didn't even know the chain was off. She was so blindfolded that she had been in the chain so long she thought that the chain was still on her leg. But Russ, like McNamara, knew that if something was going to change, it was going to change right now. Nobody liked contracts. They just needed a little convincing to fight back. So my voice was then, well, the chain is off, you know. Just move on out and do something else. The CBL organized a payment strike. To be safe, the Lawndale families put aside the payments they would have made in a safe deposit box. If the renegotiations worked, they wanted to have cash on hand to cover the back payment. What was cool was that we kept track of how much uh, we had. And, you know, you came to a million dollars pretty quickly. The night before the first eviction, we had a large crowd meeting a church there. And, you know, we could have paid right then. But people got up and say, well, night's darkest hour comes before the dawn. And we ain't got nothing know-how anyway. So uh, everybody you know, kind of remained resolved and in solidarity. The CBL fought the eviction attempts that followed, sometimes in court, sometimes in more wily fashion. At the beginning, we were able to get so many people inside the house that when the sheriff's guys came, uh, they couldn't get in to move, remove the furniture. Just stand in the house. If they move the stuff, when they leave, we put stuff back in. Despite their creative tactics, the activists could only do so much, and at least 12 families were thrown out of their homes for good. But many were able to renegotiate, presumably as a result of the payment strike. By the end of 1970, 106 contracts had been renegotiated, with each family saving an average of $14,000. McNamara says that over the next several years, that number rose to 490 families, with an average savings of $13,500, putting them more or less on par with what a white homeowner with a mortgage would have paid. Clyde Ross was one of them. By the time he renegotiated, he had been making contract payments for a decade, so he didn't owe any more money on his house. Plus, he had all that money saved up from the payment strike. She said, what are we going to do with it? Fix the house up. Bought me a new car. (laughs) A brown Chevy. And best of all, he got the deed to his house. He remembers that day very clearly. Oh, man, it's, it was unbelievable dates, you know. It was unbelievable. I can walk in this house and say, well, I own this house, and I ain't got to pay no mortgage next month. And then the chain was really up. Oh, my <laughs> chain was off. And, this, and, and, and after that, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> Two or three nights, I couldn't sleep. Clyde still lives in that house today, 50 years later. You know, Brian, one thing that struck me about that remarkable story was the extent that the federal government thought that it was doing the right thing, but ended up doing something that was very damaging to a lot of people. Yeah, it it turns out that the federal government and government in general are us. Uh, Mm -hmm. It 
represents our greatest hopes and ideals. And that was the idea behind extending home ownership uh, beyond a narrow class of people. But the federal government also embodied some of our most deeply ingrained prejudices. You know, I think it's uh, too easy to get uh, depressed by the givenness of things, how they're never going to change. And what we constantly see as historians is that individuals do matter, after all. And it's not just the great men. It's the the people who sense an injustice, the people who see beyond what uh, uh, our government sees uh, that can transcend the biases that are built into, embedded in social policy. I think there's a lot of inspiration in that story, and uh, uh, it shows us there there is always, somehow or another, a way forward. And Peter, this is right up your alley, but what struck me the most about that piece is the way all those individuals were not aware that each individually was getting screwed. That's right. And it it was only when they began to join together in what we might call a mini informal form of governance that they actually were able to get something done. Yeah, we get isolated, we can be controlled. It's when we associate with each other that uh, we we can empower each other. As you might already know, we're ending our hourly show on your local public radio station in two weeks. Now, we hasten to add, that doesn't mean we're going away. We have big changes coming up in 2017, and two of them with us right here today. We have new host and Joanne Freeman. Hi, Ed. And Nathan Connolly. Hello, hello. We've been hard at work revamping the Backstory podcast, and each episode will do what we always do best, bring you the history behind the headlines with great storytelling and fun conversation. And we can't wait to get started. We'll be here every week on Backstory in your podcast feed, so come check us out. If you want to hear a preview, go to our website at backstoryradio.org, or you can search for our podcast in the iTunes store. But remember... We're not leaving the public radio airwaves entirely. We'll be sending stations shorter backstory segments connected to the news of the day. Those stations will be able to run these pieces alongside the news. If you want to hear it on your public radio station, write to them and ask them to pick it up. We're going to return to the backstory vault. The year was 2007. Ed, Brian, and I had just completed our very first pilot of an hourly public radio show about American history, but it wasn't exactly backstory. Welcome, everybody. You're with us on the History Hotline call-in show, where we take on your questions about U.S. history. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Brian Bellow. I'm Peter Onuf. A big part of the History Hotline is getting your... <laughs> hey, Peter, was that you on the Princess Touchtone telephone? <laughs> hey, Princess Telephones, that's 20th century. We wrote letters in my day. <laughs> now, many of our listeners today might not realize that Backstory was conceived of as a sort of car talk for history. People would call in and we'd answer whatever questions about history they would throw at us. 
Um, I'm wondering if you feel that uh, Civil War reenactments and theme park replicas of historical sites prostitute or exploit history. My question has to do with uh, the spread of American popular culture in Europe in the 20th century, and specifically the role I have a question that, about uh, uh, U.S. imperialism. <laughs> oh, and the, the, the deal is you can't walk Okay, I just want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, FDR and what he did at Yalta in terms of, you know, you know, sort of rolling over to, in front of Stalin and and then forcing... Let the record show, we didn't actually answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> they were great questions, though. We loved them. That's what kept us going in the That's radio. what took a year and a half on that pilot. History Hotline wasn't only about the people calling in. There were also recurring segments like the ever-popular gear from yesteryear, <laughs> where Peter and I had to guess a historical technology based on clues from Brian. Why this was not a hit, I still don't understand. So... Six inches long and steel and pointed at the end. Yeah, the you know that all, that almost is like something you could write with something pointed at the end. Like that. you are you are really really hot. Okay. This is the electric pen. Tell me why the heck you would need an engine attached to something to write with. I got it because you have writer's block. <laughs> Obviously, the reason you would have But that you know, at its heart, History Hotline was about debating, chatting, and laughing with you, our listeners. And I'm happy to say that that feature is going to remain an important part of Backstory in the future. On the Backstory podcast, we'll continue to answer your burning questions about American history and even do historical investigations for you. So if you want to be a part of the new Backstory and keep the spirit of History Hotline alive, just head to our website, backstoryradio.org, or send us an email at backstory at virginia.edu. Ask us questions. Let us help you solve a historical mystery. Share your family histories. Suggest episodes, or just let us know what you think about the new show. Because even after all these years, we are still standing by, waiting to hear from you. Backstory was created by our now-retired executive producer, Andrew Wyndham. Since he was with us from the very beginning, he had to think long and hard about his favorite segment. I felt, starting out, that these guys had the potential to really inspire people around the country, modeling um, respectful and challenging uh, conversations. Now. There have been so many wonderful features and interviews over the years, but I thought the best way maybe to convey this sense of the show's potentials would be to pick something out that featured the guys in dialogue with a public audience. So the clip that I chose uh, was recorded at the Virginia State Capitol at an event that was part of a multi-day program on the ending of the Civil War, featuring uh, a great many reenactors who brought the event to life. 
what you're hearing is a recreation of April 3rd, 1865, a few days before the surrender at Appomattox. On that morning, Union soldiers under the command of Major General Godfrey Weitzel marched into the former capital of the Confederacy. Richmond was still engulfed by fires that the fleeing Confederates had set in an effort to destroy the materiel and the goods they had left behind. Linda Holmes of Portsmouth, Virginia, was among the many who were there to watch. This was a snapshot of what was a gigantic happening <laughs> at the time and what it must have meant to African-Americans who were enslaved to see in the streets of Richmond the Union soldiers, including the colored troops, marching free, liberated, in victory. I mean, it's like, to me, it's, to me, this is our 4th of July. <laughs> it is our Independence Day. The colored troop reenactors were followed by active duty military, young men and women of all skin colors. And bringing up the rear, African Americans in traditional African garb, playing drums and carrying pictures of influential black leaders. All in all, it was a very different kind of event from those you might associate with Civil War history. 150 years to the day since Abraham Lincoln walked the streets of that burned-out city and strolled through the Capitol building where Jefferson Davis governed for four years, we hosted a live question-and-answer session in that very same building. As you'll hear, it featured snippets from interviews our producers conducted over the course of a few days with some of the people attending the events. This uh, next clip of tape that we're going to hear gets at I think a very familiar and common trope um, that has been used many times in the past. This is John Boudreaux, uh, and he had many ancestors who fought for the Confederacy. And when our producer caught up with him, uh, he was wearing a Confederate battle flag uh, as a lapel pin, and our producer asked him about it. It's heritage, not hate. I love the South. I love the South. Um, and, and if we understand the context in which we, we look at those symbols of our heritage, then I don't think anybody should have a problem with that. Um, the battle flag is, is, is not a political statement. It's a soldier's flag. It's, it's not a symbol of hate. Uh, I don't express it that way. That's a part of the South to me that that needs to have been left behind, you know, way more than 150 years ago. Well, that, uh, I think, encapsulates the traditional view, uh, and that is uh, everybody's got a good war that they can remember. Uh, Heritage, not hate. It's a, a nice turn of phrase. The idea that wars could take place and we could reenact them and somehow the hate would disappear, would not be part of the memory that we're sustaining. It's a hard one for me to get my mind around. And I think that John, our, who's testifying there, uh, certainly identifies with and loves his region. This is the meaning of patriotism. If you go back into the 18th century and before, it's connection to your, the ground, to the country. You love your country, and what could be more precious to you than your country? But what is the South? And I'd only suggest that something like the idea of a team. This is a totalizing concept. He knows what the South is. Well, there are many Souths. And I think that's the challenge for us. 
If there is going to be a South today, which is our challenge, not to recover a South of yesterday, how can that South of today bring together the people who actually live here? I'm sorry, I got so loud. No, that's the paradox. <laughs> I, mean, no, I believe him when he says he hates no one. I, I believe this is what he means. But the idea of heritage as like a big treasure chest that you can sort of rifle through and take out the parts that you like and call that your heritage is very convenient. Instead, people who have inherited things know you inherit debt as well as you inherit the silverware, you know, that you don't just get the things that you want. You, you get the mistakes that your ancestors made. And I think that what the, the challenge that folks like John find is that he says, I look at my own heart. I don't hate anybody, but I can't understand why other people can't just accept that that's the case. And the fact that this symbol has been used in such hurtful and dangerous and threatening, deadly ways, I just ask them to ignore it. And it just seems too well, much I, to ask anybody. You know, Ed, I, th I think in that slip, if it was a slip, we should have gotten over this business of hating when we celebrate the Confederacy. But he's implicitly admitting that that has been what the Confederacy has stood for. He's telling us it shouldn't have to stand for that. Well, how's that gonna happen until we come to terms with what the Confederacy was? Part of the challenge is, what other symbol would you use to show that you are a proud Southerner, that you, are, that you love the place mm -hmm, where you live? Mm -hmm. And I think that what you hear, there's a kind of a pain and confusion. Well, that, everybody else gets to be proud of where they're from. Why don't we get that? And I think that, you know. No, I'm from New England and I'm not proud. I'm full of the conviction of original sin. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I just want to tell you, I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> On behalf of the rest of the nation, we accept. <laughs> well, Ed, Ed started this session off by talking about telling two stories. And I, I think as we go on, play a few more clips from our producers, I think you'll see glimpses of this newer picture. It's a picture of an old story, but this, these newer interpretations that are beginning to appear and really make an impact on some of the folks who were walking around over the last couple of days. Tony, why don't we listen to the one from Roz Fains? Uh, she's an African-American woman uh, who is talking here about how excited she was to see the United States Colored Troops march into Richmond, reenacting uh, something that I'm sure was not part of the uh, commemoration 50 years ago. You know, the previous picture was slaves marching, marching across the 14th Street Bridge or being marched across from North Carolina. So we can be active in knowing that uh, we helped bring about the ending of slavery. And for African-Americans, that's very, very important. I'm sure we have a lot of school children that don't realize the active part that um, African-Americans played in the war. It really was touching today to see the USCT marching in, followed by uh, men and women from Fort Lee, and to see that continuity demonstrated, and to hear uh, Major General Weitzel read the words he actually said out there in which they recognize in this moment that they are changing the view of the world and making people understand, not only did you free these 30,000 people, he said, but you have demonstrated to the world that black men have fought to make this nation free. 
And I think, in all honesty, if you'd asked people in Richmond three years ago who set the fire, they would have assumed it was the Yankee soldiers. And who put it out, they, wouldn't have, they would have assumed somehow there were still Confederates here, even though they'd fled. <laughs> and if you told anybody that it was African-American soldiers who walked in here and put the fire out, I just don't think they would have known that. If you know that simple fact, the entire history of Richmond looks different. We concluded our program at the state capitol in Richmond by taking a few questions from the audience. Here's a little bit of our exchange. Uh, I, I'm Rob Nelson. Um, so the question is, like I could frame a couple ways, like the bicentennial, looking forward 50 years when you're all dead, hopefully, cross your fingers, I am too. Uh, <laughs> Like, do you, um, do you, have, you don't have to hope, so, Bob. Uh, I will be dead yeah, 50 yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you do your dream for what that bicentennial would look like? Another way of putting that might be like if you're thinking about your counterpart 50 years from now, planning the bicentennial events in 2061, 2065. Yeah, there's, any advice you'd give them? Like if they're digging out this recording uh, at some point? Well, fortunately, we have a guy yeah. who lives in the 21st century. Uh, what, what, what's it going to be like in 50 years, Brian? Um, I can tell you what I hope it's like. Um, I hope we are not as surprised to discover the story of the role of African Americans in the Civil War, uh, because that has become a basic part of the story. And I hope uh, in many ways that we treat it, and Peter may push back here, I'm stealing a bit of his thunder, I hope that we treat it a little bit more like we treat the Revolutionary War. In other words, it's not in some ways as big a deal because it's not addressing current problems as much 50 years from now. And that, by that I mean current racial problems. I think one of the reasons that this remarkable commemoration, and I'll go ahead and say it, celebration, has so much energy is because these questions of racial tension in the United States have not gone away. And so I really hope that's not the central focus 50 years from now, because I believe that will be one indication that those issues really have gone away to a much greater degree than today. I just have one final comment about that. The trick's going to be that we never forget the visceral suffering of slavery and of the war itself. One danger of thinking of the war as two different teams is that we forget just how much profound suffering America inflicted on itself sort of unintentionally. Thank goodness slavery ended as a result, but that would not have been known at the beginning. So the trick's going to be simultaneously to forget and to remember. Yep. And I that's think that's the, the challenge of all history. Peter, I think we're looking at the modern this is future. The future. <laughs> All right. for, our, for our last question, I, I, I can't think of a better young man. What's your name? My name is Evan. Hi, Fisher. Evan. Um, my question is, when Abraham Lincoln came here, did he come here guarded or unguarded? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to defer to our Civil War historian for that. Well, I'll tell you this, Evan. It, this it kind of scary to think about. So he'd been down the river... Uh, Hopewell, uh, and when he heard that Richmond was falling, and he took a big boat up the James, 
but it couldn't get very far because of obstructions. And so they put him in a big rowboat. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And with soldiers who rowed him, and he did have his big hat on, and he was always six foot five or whatever. What do you think? Would that be very protected in a rowboat in the no. middle of a river <laughs> with that on the other side? Yes. And then they, they landed not far from here, and nobody knew they were coming. And so they just get out and walk through this city, all over the city. I mean, walks literally right here on his way to the White House, the Confederacy. He goes up and sits in De Jefferson Davis's chair, too. It's sort of like, all right. <laughs> you know, so since it turned out okay, uh, we can be happy because he was surrounded by all the people who just the day before had been held in slavery. And now they were able to come up. And some of them called him Father Abraham. And they knew that without him to help hold the United States together, that they wouldn't be there today. We all know he didn't have much longer to live after that, right? It's ironic, isn't it, that he can come and walk around the former capital of the Confederacy and survive, but can't go to the theater just a few days later. So uh, he was not protected, and it tells you a lot about what kind of man he was, that he wanted to experience what so many people had suffered for for so long to bring to an end. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, this has been a very special day for me, and thank you for helping us make it so special. Thanks, everybody. going to do it for today. Remember to check out our preview of the new Backstory podcast on our website, backstoryradio.org. We're happy to help you make sure you keep getting the new Backstory. The address is backstoryatvirginia.edu. Also, be sure to let your hometown public radio station know if you want to hear Backstory short news segments on your airwaves in the future. Finally, we have one more week of the best of Backstory, so listen next week for some of our weirdest segments, unexpected places we visited, and for an introduction to our two new hosts. Backstory is produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional segments heard today were produced by Eric Menel, Tony Field, Jess Angabretson, and Robert Armengall. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. 
Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.